You are listening to a sermon by Robin Lee, Executive Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. So we are, as uh, Pastor Brian mentioned, finishing a brief series through the book of Ephesians, and we're looking at the last um, half of Ephesians chapter 2. So very I'm going to ask you to stand with me as I read this passage. And if you don't have your Bibles, it's inside your bulletin. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. It might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have this wonderful privilege and freedom to gather as your people. We recognize that around the world, um, there are many places where people cannot gather, where there's hostility against you, against the church. So even as we worship now, we pray that we would gather our hearts with the church universal, those that are all around the world. And we pray that today that the name of Jesus would be glorified and exalted. And today I pray for every single person here, wherever we might be, whatever sort of week that we may have had, or the kind of guilt or the heaviness with which we came into the church, I pray that you would remind us of the freedom, of the life, of the grace that you offer us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. When I was in seventh grade, there was a kid named Robbie, and Robbie was totally not the cool kid. Um, The way he dressed, the way he carried himself, the way he behaved, his mannerisms, um, it was really easy for him to be the butt of a lot of cruel jokes. And to make matters worse, he wasn't athletic, he wasn't academically very strong, he wasn't funny, um, he wasn't rich, and all of these superficial things that may have been a draw for other kids. And I just remember feeling really bad for this kid. He was bullied all the time, especially during PE. And I don't think it would be an exaggeration to say, I don't think he had a single friend. Um, During lunch, he was always alone. During PE, when there were, you know, it was brutal when you think about the way that they would pick their teams, everybody gets lined up against the fence and they pick. And he was always the last guy to get picked. 
And, and I wish, I wish I could have been that guy you know, who was noble and who saw him and befriended him and helped him, but that's not my story. That's not the way it happened. I was in seventh grade. In that time, at that school, in that context, it, was, there was, it cost too much. It would have cost too much to befriend him. You would have risked your own reputation. You would have risked also being isolated like him. And when I think back on my entire life, Robbie stands out as the guy, as the epitome of somebody who's totally socially cut off and alienated. Now, as most of you know, social isolation, social alienation is probably one of the biggest challenges confronting our teens and young adults. And speaking to some of the teenagers and the young adults here, you know that even if you're not Robbie, that you've experienced at some point what it feels like to be shut off, to be cut off, to be sort of isolated. And even if you happen to be one of the cool kids where you're popular and you're liked, you know how exhausting and how difficult it is to sustain that. And social media has been a total game changer when it comes to this. You know, you can have a kid who is physically doing well, you know, looks great, is strong academically and comes from a loving family, but he can, be inside of his, he can be inside his room feeling totally anxious, totally feeling totally depressed because of a post that he saw on social media. It's been a total game changer. And this social isolation and alienation is becoming such a problem that, the, that edu- the educators, the church, the whole world recognizes its impact on mental and emotional health. And this is something that we as a church have begun to have conversations and we need to continue to pursue that. So, so social alienation is a real thing. It's a real concern. But there's another kind of alienation, another kind of isolation, and it's spiritual alienation. And that's what today's passage is about. That's what Paul is talking about. And, and what Paul is talking about is, in some sense, we are all like Robbie spiritually. In fact, the language that he uses is that we are totally helpless. Now, I don't know if I would have described Robbie as being totally helpless. I mean, he was close. But the language that Paul uses for us spiritually is that we were helpless, Now, quick review, as you may know, as it's been repeated over the last few weeks, the book of Ephesians has six chapters, right? It's got the first three chapters and the second three chapters. In the first three chapters, it's called the indicatives. And the indicatives talk about who we are in Jesus. Jesus has secured our salvation by grace through faith. Um, Immeasurable riches in Christ, that's what's in store for us. This is who we are. This is what's been promised to us. The imperatives, the latter three chapters of the book has to do with the imperatives. Now that this is true of you in Jesus, because you've been saved, because you're immeasurably rich, this is how you ought to live. This is how you conduct yourself. This is how you behave in the context of family. This is how you live in the context of the world. Indicators always come first. We have to remember who we are before we think about how we're called to live. You get that order mixed up. It's what Sinclair Ferguson calls calls the gospel grammar. If you ever get that order mixed up and we wake up thinking, here's what I must do, but you, before you remember this is who you are, we quickly go down the slope of, of legalism and guilt-driven obedience. But here's what's interesting about today's passage. It's in chapter two. It's in the first half of the book, which has to do with the indicatives, but Paul sneaks in here an imperative. 
And it's the only time in the first three chapters of Ephesians that we have an imperative. And that imperative is the word remember. Remember. And so there are three things that in today's passage that Paul wants us to remember. It has to do with the past, the present, and the future regarding our spiritual state. So Paul tells us to remember. Now in verse 11, Paul begins by saying, therefore, remember. And then in verse 12, he says it again, remember. The first thing that he wants us to remember is our past, where we were what our spiritual state was. Now, in the context of this letter, Paul is writing to a primarily Gentile audience. Now, in Paul's world, there were Jews and there was all other, and all other was Gentiles. Now, if you were a Jew, you grew up with all kinds of privileges and benefits when it comes to knowing God. You were God's chosen people. It was with Abraham that God made a promise to bless and multiply and to make into a great nation. And through Abraham, then you had Moses and the people of Israel was formed. It was with the Jews that the law of God was given where they, they, they knew what was required of God and they, were, they anticipated that some Messiah would come in the future. It was with the Jews that the blueprint of a temple was given and where sacrifices um, was, was made, where they knew that in order to deal with sin, that bloody sacrifices were required. And it was with the Jews that the sign of circumcision was given. This, to a Jewish boy, a physical marker that designated, that reminded you that you were chosen, that you were loved. This is what you grew up with when you were a Jew. All sorts of benefits in the sense that you knew about God. And this is the air that you breathed in. But if you were a Gentile, that wasn't the case. That wasn't your story. Your story didn't involve this amazing exodus out of Egypt. You didn't have a physical marker that reminded you that you were God's chosen people. You grew up with none of it. Which is why Paul says, when he's writing to the Ephesians here, again, to this Gentile audience, he says in verses 11 and 12, you were the uncircumcised, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God. So Paul is saying that as a Gentile, because of your sins, because you didn't have the benefit of of being a chosen people, You were far, very far from God. You were removed from God. But at the same time, as he's he's speaking to these Gentile converts, he, he makes a comment about the Jewish converts. And he says this in verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. The Gentiles were those that were far off The Jews were those that were near in the sense that they had the word of God, but they were just as in need of the saving work of Jesus on their behalf. Now, let me try to illustrate this. Imagine a classroom of five-year-old kindergartners, okay? And, you know, these are normal kindergartners. Nobody's like a Doogie Howser. They're just average five-year-old kindergartners. They're silly. They're making jokes. They're totally distracted. You know, some are still not potty trained. And you have this class, and the teacher says to the class, anybody that by the end of this week, if you can score perfectly on the AP calculus exam, you're going to Disneyland. 
You get to go to Disneyland, you get to write whatever you want, and you get to have lunch with your favorite characters. And these five-year-olds are like, yeah, high-fiving each other. You know, Simba, Lion King, you know, Buzz Lightyear, Elsa, whatever. They're super giddy, they're excited. But now remember, these are five-year-olds, they're kindergartners. They don't even know what calculus is, right? They don't know how to read, they can't write, but they're super excited. That, yeah, that this is, this is there. And then the teacher then goes on to say, okay, I'm gonna choose all the red-headed girls in the class. And there's three of them. And to them, he gets a copy of the exam that he's going to give at the end of, the, that she's gonna give at the end of the week and says, here you go. So these three kids get it, like, yes! They look at it, no answer key, but they have the exam. So they look at it like, wow, this is such a pretty book, right? It's so thick. They open it up. Why are the letters so small, right? And they're, they're intrigued by it. And they're like, wow. Now, the fact that the teacher gave this AP calculus exam ahead of time to these three redheaded girls, that's, that's special, right? There's a closeness that these three girls have with the teacher because they've been given a copy. They know what the exam requires. But let me ask you this. Do these three redheaded girls have any chance of actually getting a perfect score on the exam? No, of course not, right? And that's the point. And, and what, what today's passage is telling us is that whether you're a Gentile or a Jew, whether you grew up in the church your whole life or you're brand new to the church, you're just as far and just as in need in, in the saving grace of Jesus like everybody else. Now, that's why he says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, he opens in that passage by saying that you were dead in your sins. That you were dead in your sins. And he goes on to say, in verse 12, in today's passage, that you were without hope and without God. I'll get this. That you were without hope and without God. Now, in Romans 2, Paul, this letter that he writes to the Romans, he elaborates a little bit more on what it would mean to be without hope and without God. In Romans 2, he says, to be, to be without God, to be without hope is you are storing up wrath for yourselves for the day when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And he goes on to say again that wrath, fury, tribulation, and distress is what was in store for us. Because of our sins, it's not that we weren't going to Disneyland. We were going to hell. We were going to hell. To face the eternal wrath and the fury and the judgment of God. Now, of course, hell is never an easy topic to address. In fact, just even saying the word today can feel uncomfortable. But all I want to say about hell for today is that unless we have a sober understanding of the terror and the fury and the wrath and the foreverness of hell, we can't really appreciate grace. We can't actually appreciate what Jesus has delivered us from. You see, apart from a healthy understanding of the terribleness 
of the judgment of God, we can't actually understand or appreciate our current state. So which is why Paul begins with the past. Remember where you were headed. Remember who you were. You were without God and you were without hope. And, bef- and we need to fully understand that in order for us to, to appreciate what Paul is going to speak about next, which is our present. In verse 13, Paul says, but now, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And he goes on to say in verse 14 that Jesus has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. Now when Paul speaks here and he, and he talks about the dividing wall of hostility, some of us might be, might be wondering what's he talking about. Um, if you're well-versed in the New Testament, you might have a sense of what he's talking about. But you see, when Paul is writing to this Gentile audience, Regardless of whether you were a Jew or a Gentile, everybody knew what Paul was talking about so much so he didn't even have to elaborate. What Paul is talking about is the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. Now, the Jewish temple was the centerpiece of of Jewish religion. It's where God met his people. And built into this temple and the surrounding area were physical barriers that were designed to separate and to isolate and alienate different kinds of people. So, and later you can Google this to get a visual of what I'm talking about. So if you have the temple, you have the temple and you directly in front of the temple in the innermost courts, it was called the court of priests. And the court of priests is where any male priest who was from the tribe of Levi could could access that place. You go one layer out, you have what's called the court of Israel. In the court of Israel, any male Jewish person could access up to that point. You go out further, you have what was called the court of women. And the court of women was where anybody could come, but that was as far as the women could go. The temple, the court of priests, the court of Israel, the court of women. Of course, there were were distinctions and differences between every layer, every court, but every, all of this entire, all of the courts were on the, same, on the same level. It was on the same floor. But the biggest distinction was between the court of women and the court of Gentiles, okay? So you have the court of women, and what would happen is you would have to go five steps down from the court of, from the court of women. You go five steps down, and on the second floor, there was a five-foot stone barricade that surrounded the entire area, the entire enclosure. Go five steps down, five-foot stone barricade that just shut everybody off. And then from there, you would have to go 14 more steps down to another level. You go 14 steps down further, and there you have the court of Gentiles, and this is where everybody hung. This is where the money exchanging, this is where, you know, that it happened at the court of Gentiles. And, 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 and there was this separation that was so vast and so massive between the court of Gentiles and the rest of everything that took up on the first level, you couldn't even see what was taking place over up on the top. You're physically removed, there were steps um, removing you, there were barricades, so you couldn't even see what was happening. And one theologian says this about this, these barriers, that in all of the ancient world, 
no wall was so impassable as a wall between Jew and Gentile. No wall gave greater occasion for scorn or arrogance. No wall gave greater occasion for scorn or arrogance, and you can imagine why. And so when Paul says in verse 14 that Jesus has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, he's saying that a new day has come. He's specifically referring there to the Jew and Gentile distinction, talking about all of these barriers that everybody knew about. If you're a Gentile, this is where you belonged. There was these, there was a separation. But in Jesus, these barriers have been completely removed, completely abolished, the two are one. And on the first level, the barriers have separated the woman and the men, the men from the, from the priestly, all of those barriers are down. So what Jesus is talking about, when Paul says here that the two have become one, we're talking about a new humanity. What Jesus brings about is a new humanity. But there's more. So what we talked about, there's the temple, there's these courts, and the court of Gentiles. But the biggest distinction, the biggest barrier happened in the temple itself. Inside the temple, you have the holy place. Some of you may have heard of the holy place. The holy place is where the priest that was assigned certain tasks on that given occasion, he alone could enter in and he could perform his task. But once you entered into the holy place, you could go in further to a place called the holy of holies. Not very creative with the words, right? But holy of holies. It is like the ultra holy place. And the separation between the holy place and the holy of holies, there was this curtain. It was this veil. And it was a six-inch curtain that was meant to separate the holy place from the holy of holies. Because once you go into the holy place, and there's only one person that could go into the holy of holies, it was the high priest. Only the high priest can go into the Holy of Holies, and even then he can only go once a year, and that once a year when he went in, he would have to first make sacrifice for himself and for his family, and he enters in, and that place, when you walked in, there was an Ark of Covenant. That's what it's called, the Ark of Covenant. The Ark was basically like a chest. If you opened up the chest, what was believed was to be in there were the two the tablets where God gives his, the Ten Commandments to Moses. So inside were the two tablets. That's the Ark of Covenant. And there were angels, cherubim, with wings spread out. And that, that place designated where God himself dwelt with his people. Now, of course, God is everywhere, but that was meant to represent the very special place where God would be in this place to meet with his people. This entire system of the inner veil that separates the holy of holies and the holy place. And all of these layers of courts that separated people. It was designed to remind everybody that there is separation, there is distinction. And depending on who you were, depending on the level of holiness, you may or may not enter into that place. And but what, G, what Paul is telling us here is that in Jesus' death, by his blood, he takes upon himself 
all of the wrath, all of the judgment, all of the things that the sacrificial system in the temple pointed to, he fulfills it all. And that the separation that existed between men and women, between Gentile and Jew, has been broken. This is why the gospel writer Matthew, who is a Jewish convert, and he has really the Jewish audience in mind, and he says in Matthew 27 that at the moment that Jesus died, this curtain that was inside the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And why is, that, why is that significant? What does that mean for us today? What this means is this. For those of you, you're a believer, but you're struggling with guilt. There are things that you've done in your past that you're just so ashamed of. And just the memory of it just, caught, it just sort of torments you. And you just wonder, can I really be forgiven? This is what Jesus has done. What this is reminding us today is that your sins are forgiven. That God removes those sins from you as far as the east is from the west. That his steadfast mercy is new every morning. That even when we're unfaithful, he is faithful. That he knows that we're made of dust. I think we often forget what Jesus has done and what he's given us and this new humanity that he's created, which is why we're told to remember. Paul tells us to remember because we often forget. Now, I think what happens to us figuratively, and I've certainly done this to myself, is that depending on what you're dealing with, whatever addiction, whatever bad habit that you're trying to bring to God to say, change me, help me, but you keep falling in, right? You, you sort of figuratively throw yourself out into the court of Gentiles. And you, in your heart, you feel a thousand miles away from God. And in that moment, what I would encourage you to do is to almost imagine that Jesus, with his nail-pierced hands, comes to where you are, and he picks you up, and he takes, puts you on his back, and he carries you and he walks you up those steps through the courtyard, through all the layers of the courtyard, into the temple, into the holy place, into the holy of holies, where the Father himself is awaiting you, giving you words that you need to hear, that you are forgiven, that you are loved because of Jesus. And what the gospel declares is that when our relationship with God, which is our primary relationship, is transformed through Jesus. Our secondary relationship with fellow believers is also transformed. You see, when the veil within the temple is torn in two, symbolizing the end of this hostility between us and God, in effect, every other relationship outside of the temple, every relationship, all of the bears outside in the courts have also been transformed. What Paul is saying, again, is there's no longer a distinction between Jew or Gentile, between men and women, between priest and lady. In fact, again, what we're told is that the two become one, a new humanity has been formed. And this is our current, present reality, and with this newly formed humanity, these groups of people that used to be divided and hostile towards each other based on race, gender, 
social status, role in society are united together. But there's a future element to this, and this is our final point, that there's a future element to our spiritual identity. In our passage today, Paul tells us that we're fellow citizens of the kingdom of God. Then he tells us that we're members of the family of God or the household of God. And then he goes on to say, which may be a little bit weird to visualize, is that we're all members of the temple of God. Like we're stones that are being like laid on top of each other. We're like mortar, right? And so he starts with the kingdom of God. We're reminded that our primary allegiance is to King Jesus, our Savior, and to his mission and to his kingdom. But then Paul gets more intimate. He says, we're not just fellow citizens of a kingdom. We're members of an intimate family. And he said, that wasn't enough. We're built on top of each other. And what God is doing now is he's building a family. He's building a temple. And we're real time living in it where as the gospel is proclaimed, as we're committed to the mission of God, the temple is growing and it's being built up. This past Wednesday, my wife and daughter returned from their mission trip to Poland, which our church um, sponsored. And in a couple of weeks, they'll report back on what all took place there. But I just want to share something that my wife shared with me that I think makes the point uh, related to our passage today. So this team, it was, we had, there were people from California, people from Alabama, Georgia, Ukraine and Poland. And they all came together. And you think about the, uh, the cultural barriers, you know, because there's obviously language barriers and culture barriers between the American believers and the Ukrainian believers. But also, even within the American team, apart from one Zoom meeting that they had before going to Poland, when they landed in Poland, that was the first time they had met each other. And from day one, they were exhausted. They had gone through about 30 plus hours of travel to get there. They were jet lagged, they were tired. Um, my wife and our daughter arrived Sunday night and Monday morning, hit the ground running, you gotta get going, you gotta get rolling, right? And they're there, different cultures, different languages, there's translators involved. And, but as soon as they're there, they're improvising, they're collaborating, they're working together. And again, I'll let them report, but it sounds like just after, it was an amazing week. It was an amazing week. Now the question is, how does that happen? How, does, how do believers from around the country and from around the world who've never met each other, who have very different upbringings, speak different languages, ate different food, have different jobs, have different economics, how, how does that hodgepodge of people come together it's because of the spiritual family of Jesus. You see, what Jesus is knitting together and bringing together is a whole new kind of family. And because of the blood of Jesus that unites us together, it transcends every ethnic, economic, political, cultural barrier that we would bump up against. And that's what Paul is getting at here. Let me read again verses 19 through 22. So then you are no longer citizens, you are, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure 
being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And I think the reason why Paul is so passionate and concerned about this to the point that he's giving three different kinds of analogies to describe the unity and the union that believers have is because he knows what's at stake. Jesus, the night before he died, we have his high priestly prayer for us recorded in John chapter 17. And here's what he prays. Jesus says, I pray, I ask for those who will believe in me that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I in them and you in me, that they, may, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. That they may all be one so that the world may believe. According to Jesus, the unity that believers have with one another is going to be the proof that Jesus is real. Now, going back to the example of this one week mission trip in Ukraine, some of you might say, well, of course, it was one week, right? Of course, it's gonna be different, right? True, true. You see, what happened there was there was an urgency. They, what, here's what they didn't do. They didn't talk about mass or vaccination or politics or social issues. They didn't, it's not that those aren't important, but there's an urgency to the task at hand and that what unites them is the primary commitment to the gospel that unites them and they can work. Here, we're not talking about a week, but there is an urgency still, right? And we need to be united and focused on the things, on the primary things, so that our witness and our message isn't lost. And may God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, do that in our lives and in this church. Amen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you, God, that in Jesus, people who were so different, so unlike each other, different personalities and different races and different cultural backgrounds, that we can become one because of the blood of Christ. I pray that, that, would, that we would believe and that you would, through the power of your Holy Spirit, live that out through us. Father, may new life be a church that is so united in our commitment to Jesus and to the gospel that we would see many from around Escondido and San Diego and even around the world come, hear the message of life, that the family of God, that the temple of, the, of God would continue to grow. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Robin Lee, Executive Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido, reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.